0: Hey guys, we have a new giveaway for you this week. Thanks to our partner, Beta, we will be giving away three Simple Being weighted blankets. I'm sure you've heard of the weighted blanket. These blankets help with anxiety, insomnia, and other sleeping problems. They're super comfy and they put you to sleep right away. We'll be giving away three this week to our listeners. Just sign up for the giveaway at www.mission.org giveaway. The Simple Being blanket retails for $80 and you can actually go and try it out at any Beta store around the country. Beta is a retail store designed for discovering, trying, and buying the latest products and innovations around. Find a beta store near you or visit beta.com. That's b 8 Welcome to Mission Daily. On today's episode, Ian is joined by Maggie Palmer, founder of Pep Talk Her, a tech company which empowers professional, aspirational women to know and negotiate their value, and with the goal of putting an end to the gender pay gap. Prior to Pep Talker, Meggie spent more than a decade working as a journalist for BBC World, CNBC, Discovery Channel, and others as a foreign correspondent and director. On this episode, Ian and Maggie discuss the impact the stories we tell ourselves have on ourselves and how others value us, and how telling the right story can dramatically and measurably improve the value we create and receive. Mission Daily is created by our team at mission.org.
1: Welcome to Mission Daily. I'm Ian Faison, Chief Content Officer here at Mission.org. And we have in studio. Maggie, how's it going?
2: Yeah, things are going well. How about you?
1: Things are great. Yeah. We are so excited to talk to you about your background, um, about Pep Talk Her. One, a really, truly, an exceptionally done app. And uh, we just, you showed it to me before we started. And uh, I'm so excited for you and the company. You're going to put an end... To the gender pay gap. Hopefully, it's, it's do myself
2: a, out of a job. That's yeah, the plan. That is the plan.
1: <laughs> um, and we're excited to to uh, to travel along on your journey here. So, before we get into any of that, as a young child growing up,
2: mm-hmm.
1: how did you get into interest in technology?
2: Ooh, what a great question! I can still remember. I grew up on a farm in Queensland, in Australia, and my, we had a shed. Uh, where dad's office was and we had some computers. And I can still remember like doing the the coding and you had to, to play games. You had to sort of type whatever it was, colon dash forward slash Mavis Beef can teachers typing or whatever these games were that we played. I can still remember that um, back in the olden days. I guess they were MS-DOS? Is that what they were? I don't even know. They were old school computers. So I have memories of that. So we actually, dad was pretty progressive. He actually got us onto computers really early. Uh, And so I suppose we were sort of like mini coding kind of, not really, but we, we sort of had to have a technical understanding in order to be able to play the games that we wanted to play. But we were just on autopilot, you know, we were kids. So I wasn't like my brother was a big gamer, but I liked the nerdy games. Like Come in San Diego. Yeah. Where in the world is come San Diego? So good. The typing games, like a bit of a bit of a nerd, even way back when.
1: So how do you describe yourself now? Are you a technologist, an activist, mm. uh, an ex-journalist?
2: Yeah, I call myself a recovering journalist turned entrepreneur because I feel like once a journalist, always a journalist. You know, I'm really genuinely passionate and interested in people and their stories, and I I don't think that that is ever going to go away. Even though I'm not working full time as a reporter anymore. But yeah, I guess I'm I guess I'm an entrepreneur, you know? I, I suppose that's how I would describe myself these days.
1: Did you ever imagine that you would build an app that reaches as many people as you do right now?
2: No. I guess not. And it's funny because you know, I for me, I got into journalism because I was really interested in changing hearts and minds through stories, really. I thought that you could you could impact people's view of the world through sharing stories and creating that empathy. But what I realized throughout my career was I observed the media landscape declining, um, the reach of the media not being as powerful as it once was, but actually technology was obviously on the rise. And as we know now, it's, it's very much a part of our day-to-day life. And so for me, I, I started to observe this trend and that was why I was interested in getting in into- Technology, because I actually think now we can have more of an impact on women uh, in a positive way now through pep talker through the app um, and through our community. Then perhaps I could directly with women as a journalist. So I think that technology's impact is only going to keep continuing to rise.
1: Yeah, it's a great it's a great insight because I think one of the pieces that you know us as a media company that we always think about we have so many people that follow along to stories. Yeah, but now they want to be part of that story or they want to be mm-hmm. part of, you know, in this case, like your journey, they they mm-hmm. are inspired by those things. But ultimately, like, they need that nudge. They need something to get feedback on. They need some type of help in some way. Mm-hmm. And the role of media is to kind of do that. But you've created an application. We'll get into that a little bit where you can actually do that in a more meaningful way. Did you kind of feel... Before you went into journalism, did you feel like that was your calling?
2: You know, I'd love to say that I always wanted to be a journal. I, you know, I tell you what I always wanted to be actually was a lawyer. Um because you know as as a kid I liked to debate. Dad would say argue, I'd say debate. Um you <laughs> know, I was kind of uh, you know, I liked I liked just discussing ideas and throwing things around and disagreeing and trying to learn how to disagree in a way that is respectful. And so I always wanted to be a lawyer. And I I did work experience with a very senior Queen's Council in Australia, a senior QC. And I must have been 15. You know, I was a bit of probably a little bit of an upstart. Like I thought I was, you know, I was gonna be a lawyer. This is my this is my profession. This is gonna be my career. And this wonderful, very senior woman um kindly allowed me to do work experience with her for a week. And I can still remember that first day walking into those legal offices, and I saw the way the male lawyers looked at her. And she was more senior, she was more impressive, she won more cases, and they just I just knew as a kid, I was, I was a kid and I could see they didn't respect her. I mean, they yeah. clearly didn't respect me and the way they looked at me was foul as well, but that's fine. Cause I was a little work experience, whatever, But the way they looked at her, I was like, that is repulsive. And I just knew from that moment, I was like, this is not the industry for me. I knew I wouldn't cope in that world. So for some crazy reason, I went into media, which as we know is not perfect either. But I don't think that maybe the conservative sort of within a box constrictions of law would have worked well for me. Whereas journalism did give me a little bit more latitude. There are still issues with respect of women as we as we've obviously seen with the Me Too movement as well and, and a lot of cases here in the US. And that was certainly my experience in Australia um, as a journalist, less so when I worked for the BBC in London, actually they were great. But yeah, so I wanted to be a lawyer, ended up becoming a journalist, turned founder. Who knows what's gonna happen next? We'll see.
1: It seems like it's the hard thing to do to go try to be a journalist, especially kind of like when you were doing it. Wouldn't it be easier to just hang out at Bondi and save lives?
2: Are you referring to the fact that I was a lifesaver? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I, well, I grew up on, uh, on a town called the Gold Coast, which, if any of your listeners have been to Australia, perhaps they've been there. It's a really famous sort of beach city, I suppose. I grew up on, on a farm, so half an hour from the beach. But even as kids, we would do volunteer lifesaving. Yeah. My dad was a member of the lifesaving community, and so we learned um how to, you know, swim, um, swim safely, identify rips, dangerous conditions, save people if they got into trouble. So that was very much a part of my my childhood. And then when I moved to Sydney, um, many years later, I ended up becoming a volunteer lifesaver there, Redid my training, which coincidentally is where my, where I met my fiance. Okay, uh, yeah. So we were both training to be volunteer lifesavers down at North Bondi, uh, surf club, which was really good fun.
1: When you told your family and friends mm-hmm. that you were, you're running around doing journalist things, yeah. potentially in dangerous areas, uh-huh. you know, working on things and projects and, uh, things here and there. Were people happy, upset, bit of both?
2: I'm fortunate in that my family and friends have always been super supportive. I was, my parents never told me what to do. They never forced me to follow a particular career path. And frankly, it was kind of a little bit by accident that I ended up becoming a journalist. You know, obviously as as a young cub reporter, you know, you go to things like Shootings and things like that. So, uh, even from a very young age, I guess they were kind of used to me doing stories that weren't dangerous, but they were sort of, you know, it's not like going to a nine to five office. But certainly when I started doing more travel into disaster zones, into earthquake areas, and into war zones, you know, again, they never really, they were always supportive. I imagine that must have been very hard for them. They probably never told me about their anxieties or concerns that they had about me traveling to Syria or to Nepal during the earthquake. And actually, when I was in Nepal, just, I flew in after the earthquake happened to cover the story. And, of course, there's always aftershocks. And I remember I was with my camera operator, Dave, and we were interviewing a local man whose house had just fallen down. We probably stupidly went up into that house, five stories up, always about getting the story. We went up, filmed that. That was great. We walked back down. He was very gracious and showed us his home. And then we were back on the street and there was an aftershock. And the whole street just started to move everyone started running. It was like a rampage. My cameraman kept rolling somehow. We ran. And I, I still remember, I remember thinking, okay, it was, I was i just very calm. I was like, I was running, but in my mind, I was very calm. I was like, the buildings are going to fall. We will be crushed. And that's it. I mean, it's kind of weird at the time, but I was just quite calm about it for some reason. I don't know why. I was that was in my mind, like my, my body was running and screaming and running and trying to get Dave because I just wanted to make sure he was with me. But my mind was like, okay, this is how it's going to end. But anyway, that footage was filmed and so that ended up in a story that I ended up doing. And when my family saw that, they were not too impressed. They're like, excuse me, why did you go into that house in the first place? And then what were you doing on that street? Um, but after the fact that, you know, that, and again, I think as a, you know, that was when I was home and I was safe. And I think as a journalist, it's the great privilege that we have in that we travel to countries, we step into people's lives at the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. And then we walk away. But, you know, those Nepalese people are still there and they're still trying to rebuild their lives. And so it's always a, I always found it kind of uncomfortable because I got to fly out and be safe and go home to my great home. And they were stuck rebuilding a country that obviously that'll take decades for them to recover from.
1: Other than potentially getting crushed in an earthquake, why did you decide to leave journalism?
2: Yeah, I loved my job. You know, I loved it and I loved I loved meeting people and I loved, frankly, the impact. Like we we did an amazing film with Aboriginal teenagers in Australia that really shifted people's perception, which I think was really important. I did another story about disability rights, which changed legislation. So I'm really proud of the work that we did, um, that I did and my team did, you know, to shift policy and change minds. But for me, I had an experience whereby I came to realise that my pay and conditions at one of the companies that I worked at was very different to that of my male colleagues. And I guess for me, that was kind of a moment where the blinkers were taken off and the reality of the world, I kind of realized the reality of the world that we lived in. And so it was a couple of years later that I left journalism, but I guess that was really the catalyst for me to start percolating in my mind about how could I change that? How could I give women the confidence that they needed to have hard conversations, to question when they're fired, when they're pregnant, to ask why they're not being paid fairly. And so whilst I loved journalism, it was just time for me to move on to what I kind of feel like is my calling. Like I I feel like this is what I'm here to do is to help empower women to close the pay gap and hopefully eventually do myself out of a job. That's the plan.
1: (laughs) Now that you had this kind of like idea, this inkling of like, I want to be able to help women do these things. Mm -hmm. What was the first step? Did you start building a product? Did you start developing? Did you start talking to your friends? What did you do?
2: That's a great question. So for me, the first step, I was still working as a journalist I started to talk to friends and colleagues about what were their experiences. And, you know, when you've got, when you've got friends, of course, you always ask people like, I'm going for this job interview. What should I say? I've been offered this promotion. What should I do? And so of course we'd always talk about it. And I started to find a lot of my friends would come to me for advice. Um, They'd ask me how to ask for a raise. They'd ask me, why did I sign this contract? you know, I didn't get time to have a lawyer look it over. What should I do? And I'd help them draft the email to say, you know, I'd like another look at the contract. I just help people out as you do. And then it just kept happening and happening and friends of friends would reach out. And I started to realize that there was a gap. Like people didn't know who to go to. If you couldn't afford a lawyer, if you didn't have a lawyer in your friends or family circle, how did you get that advice? And so it really just happened organically. I just started to identify the problem. I'd lived through the problem myself. And I saw that so many other women were living through it every day as well. And so that's, I guess, where it started. From there, I enrolled in Accelerator. I did the Founder Institute program, and that really helped me put some structure around my idea, and just really identify what is the problem that we were trying to solve. What was the problem that I wanted to work on, even if it never made any money? And I think that that was really great advice that I was given. You've got to start a company that you're happy to do, even if you don't make money, because as you know, startups are really hard, and if you don't live and breathe, and if you don't love it then it's even harder.
1: And were you, you were in Australia at the time?
2: I was in Australia, right. So I started it when I was was living in Australia. That's when I had the idea. That's when I did an accelerator, started to sort of test it out, did a survey, did a lot of research, spoke to hundreds of women, did one-on-one interviews to understand where their fears came from. Why did they ask for a raise? Why didn't they? What did work? What didn't work? What tools were out there? What do they wish existed? And just really trying to understand that customer at an in-depth level.
1: I love that you were working that you didn't quit the day job? Because that's like one of those things that is one way or the other can be either the best advice or the worst Mm -hmm. advice, like the Mm -hmm. jump moment. Yeah, Uh, And so I kind of wanted to to get to your jump moment. Clearly you had a huge jump moment because you actually left Australia, which had to be extremely difficult. But when did you decide that I want to go from working as a journalist to, I need to do this full-time as my job?
2: That's a great question. So I realized quite early on in my career that journalism was never going to be a cash cow. That would mean that I'd be able to retire in a luxurious lifestyle. Um, But that was okay because I loved it. So what I did was I started a side hustle. So someone asked me one day, do you do media training? And I was like, yes, yes, I do. I didn't, but I quickly worked it out. I taught myself how to do it. I developed a program and started to make money. So I realized, oh, I have skills outside of reporting stories and outside of live crosses and documentaries that's actually valuable. So that was really, really important for me to understand that I had utility and value outside of journalism. So I started to build, you know, made five grand, 10 grand, 30 grand on the side, like bits and pieces here and there. And that grew and grew and grew. And so I built that up to a point where I was comfortable if I left my journalism day job, I could still pay the rent and I would still be okay. So I guess that jump moment for me was probably when I was at a tipping point with Pep Talker. I was so passionate about it. I was always talking about it, always working on it after hours. So I wanted to be working on Pep Talker full-time. I didn't know how we'd make money. So my side hustle of the media training business became the full-time hustle and Pep Talker was the side hustle. And so Sliding Door Media has always funded Pep Talker. That's how we managed to build the app. That's how we managed to kind of pay for all the expenses. So one business kind of fed into the other. And I guess it was just the jump moment for me was just a point in my mind where I was like, I love journalism, but I don't love it enough to dedicate my life to this full time anymore.
1: It's a great point because I think people a lot of times feel like they have a career they've always wanted to do, you know, whether it's you want to make it in the NFL or Mm -hmm. you want to, you know, be a journalist or whatever it is, and whether you fall short or you actually get to do that for a little while and then that ends there's still things that you can do around that. And like, that's yeah. what I think a lot of people kind of don't necessarily realize mm-hmm. is that you can still work on your dream. You just, you know, you might not be in the NFL, but you could work, you could create an application for, you know, fantasy football players. Yeah, you or could coach like a that. local
2: team. Like there's always ways, right? That you can Im- be involved with your passion in some capacity, a hundred percent.
1: And when you build your own business, you can just literally focus on that. <laughs> you, can, yeah. you can say, hey, I want to, you know, whatever, build a business for former NFL players or whatever, whatever the case is, have you kind of found that in a roundabout way or a direct way that you're able to impact just so many more people by creating a company versus by kind of going a traditional path?
2: Right. And I think if I'd stayed as a journalist my entire life and my entire career, that would have been wonderful, but it would have been at the behest of someone else, right? Someone else would always be calling the shots and that's totally fine but I kind of wanted to also build freedom for myself. I wanted to build financial freedom. I wanted to build geographic freedom. And frankly, I wanted to make an impact in the way that I wanted to make the impact. And, you know, I think we've come a long way in the world, but even a couple of years ago, I can still remember pitching a story on indigenous Australians to one of my producers. And the producer said to me, Meggie, no one cares about black people. And I was like, I beg your pardon? But that's actually what he said to me. And so I couldn't do the sort of stories that I wanted to do at that network because they didn't value the same things that I did. And I valued telling stories of, you know, people that didn't have the microphone to tell those stories that we did and people that didn't have the access that that we did in media. And I, I felt a responsibility. And so I think those negative experiences actually, in the long run for me, have been a real positive because I intentionally now create a team that is from a whole heap of different backgrounds. And I intentionally build a culture that is glorious to work at. Like I want people to love working on our mission of closing the pay gap. I want them to love working with each other. I want them to feel that they can have frank and fearless conversations. And I want them to feel safe because I've worked in workplaces. And I'm sure a lot of your listeners have where the culture really sucks and where you don't feel safe and where you feel scared and where people are bullied. And that's not nice. And I don't think you get the best out of people. So what I've tried to do in my career is take all the negative things that have happened, and just work out how could I build a company that flips that on its head, and all the positive things as well. I've had so many amazing mentors and sponsors in my career. A lot of the men, mind you, women and men, but a lot of senior men in media in Australia and the UK were pivotal in my career, and without their support, I wouldn't be where I am today. And I'm really grateful to that, to them for that. And so I think it's also about paying it forward and you know, creating and training people on my team that can hopefully stay with us. But if they go somewhere else, that's beautiful. And I, and I wish them all the success, you know, I want, I want to build them up so they can go and and do great work in the world.
1: Did you have a moment where you felt especially lonely or like, Mm. Hey, maybe this all isn't worth it. Maybe I should just move (laughs) back home. Uh, Like, why am I doing this? Why am I working late nights and weekends? Yeah.
2: From a very young age, I've always traveled. I lived in the United States as a kid, on and off. My father was working over here. Um, I did exchange to Italy as a student. And so I guess seeing the world and um, seeing other people's perspectives was always a part of who I was. I don't think I've never regretted it, I have to say. I think, you know, migrating to a new country is really tough. But also, I'm so grateful because I'm in a position where I can migrate and I can choose to come to the United States. They'll let me in. If it doesn't work out, I can go home. And so, I, you know, I'm conscious as well of that privilege and I feel like being born in Australia with an Aussie passport really is a lottery of life. You know, that, that's I feel like I've won the lottery of life with that, you know. The worst case scenario for me is I go back to Australia. That's a pretty great worst case scenario. We have universal healthcare, you know, we have a safety net. It's, it's a great country. But I think the reason the United States appeals to me is because I think the mindset here is uh, more encouraging towards businesses, towards entrepreneurs. And frankly, it's a bigger market size. And so for Pep Talker, it made sense for us to move here because we want to impact the most number of women. And I think building a product that resonates with the United States audience is really important because we know if it resonates here, it will work in Australia. And I wasn't sure that the reverse would also be true.
1: What did Pep Talker version one app look like?
2: You should see the first logo. It was so bad. I literally, it was so bad. I thought it was great at the time. I was like, this is so good. It was like aqua blue. Like it was horrendous. I did it for, you know, five bucks or 30 bucks on Upwork, yep. you know, scrappy startup. You just got to get something out there. But I, I was pretty proud of it. And, you know, we're about to go through a rebrand again. So you're never done. But the first version of the app, it was, I mean, we'd, we'd done a lot of the pre-work. So we'd done a lot of wireframing. We knew exactly what we wanted to build, but of course, like it's, it wasn't perfect. Nothing's ever perfect, right? I feel like Slack that's just done a big IPO. It's not perfect. LinkedIn's not perfect. Nothing is ever perfect. If you strive for perfection, you strive, you know, to make things better. You're always improving your product, breaking it, fixing it, you know, adding things, taking things away. And so I feel like the Pep Talker product now is really, really great. And we're so excited that we have like so many thousands of users around the world on Apple and Android. But equally, we're always improving it, and we're grateful to our community that tell us what they like, what they hate, what they wish was on there, what they'd pay for. So it's kind of like a moving feast. But yeah, you're always embarrassed, right, of your first product. Like probably my first media training session as well was probably shocking, and it's got a lot better since then because practice makes perfect.
1: Was there a early piece of feedback that you got from? one of the women that you kind of carry with you or was kind of like Hmm. that light bulb moment or aha moment. Like, yeah, wow, this is, (laughs) this is super important.
2: It's so interesting when you reflect back on the things that happen in your career, good and bad. And I didn't realize at the time, I had a boss, her name's Kathy. She's still a dear friend today. And I can still remember she sat me down. I think I was about 21. So I'd been a journalist for maybe a year or so. And I was kind of getting itchy feet. I was junior. I was like rolling the auto cue in the studio and I was running scripts and, you know, doing interviews for senior journalists. And I was getting a little bit bored. Like it was kind of, you know, I was like, what's next? What's next? And I still remember Kathy called me into her office. She sat me down and she said, you're doing really well. I'm really proud of your work. Everyone's really happy with you. I was like, thank you. Thank you. She's like, do you want to say anything? And I was like, (laughs) no, thank you. She's like, you should ask me for a pay rise. And I was like, what? She was like, you should really ask me for a pay rise. And I was like, oh, oh, oh yes. I think I've done a great job. Please can I have a pay rise? But like I didn't know to ask that. They didn't teach me that at college, right? Like I learned so much about accounting and economics and ethics, and but no one taught me to ask for a raise. And so she kindly gave me that push to be like, girl, hurry up, ask for it. You know, if you don't ask, you don't get. And I wonder if she'd not asked me, if she'd not taught me to ask, I wonder how much less I would have earned throughout my career. I wonder if I'd still be here today working on Pep Talker, you know, because she took that opportunity to give away more of her budget to me and to to use that as a teaching moment. And so I'm really grateful to her for that. Um, And I've told her since actually. I'm sure she doesn't even remember the conversation. Um, But there was another mentor I had actually, a a male mentor, a lovely um, news director called Ross, and he – I was promoted into a role – I thought I was over my in over my head. Um, he could clearly see that I was overwhelmed. And he sat me down. He said, what's going on? And I was like, I just, I don't know why I got this job. There's so many people. Like, I'm not even that good. Like, why would they choose me? He's like, I'm going to stop you right there. He's like, what you're experiencing is imposter syndrome. And I was like, what? He's like, yeah, that's imposter syndrome. He's like, I, every day in my career, I think that the job police are going to walk through the door with their sirens blaring and be like, Roscoe, we've realized you're not meant to be here. Come with us and drag me out. And he's like, I overcome that every day. And he's like, I want to label that for you so that you can realize that it's a thing. Like lots of people experience this and and that's what you're going through. And that was a real light bulb moment. And i since know now that about 70% of people experience that. And so it's very normal. I think sometimes being able to realize you're not the only one, everyone is still working it out. A lot of people feel like they're out of their depth. That was really helpful for me. To think that I wasn't the only one, and I would get through this, and someone as amazing as him had got through it, so that gave me the confidence to think that I could as well.
1: And I think that that's kind of a mindset
2: mm-hmm. that
1: I think a lot of people yeah. just aren't taught in school. Yeah, because you're taught qualifications.
2: Absolutely. You're
1: like you need a degree to do blank, yeah. or you need a you know high school diploma to do blank. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's just so many people that don't realize that all of our bosses.
2: At some point, also some didn't point, know what they were doing. did know what they doing, and
1: currently, <laughs> yeah. probably are in a role that they've yeah. never done before. Yeah. So you know, it's just one of those scenarios. I think is is a huge learning experience for people who just like every person who did something great, like nobody did it before them, right? Yeah. Or they're standing on the shoulders of giants and they're trying to to take it, uh, you know, take it to the next step.
2: Totally. And I think about that a lot. I think about you know, obviously we have a long way to go in terms of equality. However, imagine being a woman a hundred years ago, 200 years ago before women could vote, you know? I mean, it's pretty remarkable how how far we've come and how many glass ceilings have been broken before us. And I'm and I'm very grateful to all those women and men who fought along the journey for sure.
1: There's a great uh, cartoon from, I think it's like the 1904, 1906 World Fair, um, where it's the future. It's a hundred years in the future. Right. And uh, it's all these people in like flying cars and all this sort of stuff. <laughs> yeah. But all the people are wearing... They're like 1904, uh, like garb, right? Like, uh, like women in corsets, a, or a, or like yeah, all this yeah, sort yeah. of stuff, right? And it's just one of those things, I think, conceptually yeah. thinking about the future is so difficult mm. because you like, you can't imagine that we're not going to still be wearing jeans a hundred years from now, mm-hmm. right? Because you're like, jeans are pretty darn comfortable. But I think that a lot of people just don't, you, you couldn't imagine what rights will be like in a hundred years. Mm-hmm. And the important part is like, people like you doing this every single day to make sure that we get to that point. It doesn't happen unless we, you know, have a goal and measure it and show and figure out how to do that. You have a solution that actually does have a goal, actually does measure it. Um, And I'm curious, like what was your early feedback from users that was super, you know, impactful to you to realize you were on the right track?
2: Probably the most valuable thing that we did to validate the product was when we worked one-on-one with women. And so before we had an app, you know, working with people who worked in in banking at mid-level jobs, and we were able to quantify for them what their benefits were here, what the job offer was that they had on the table, and able to work with them to negotiate one woman, a woman, I won't say her name, one woman we worked with was able to negotiate an $86,000 raise purely <laughs> oh from God. working with us. Right, and so, but it wasn't, you know, it's not rocket science. It was but just what like...
1: what are the tips, though? Can you share okay. those tips? <laughs> yeah,
2: so I think for her in this instance, it was essentially... This is how much she's paid and these are her benefits. This is the bonus that she had owing. She was about to get three months of paid time off for free. So we just like put a number figure on all of those things, right? And so then she realized for her to take this new job, she wouldn't be getting the bonus. She wouldn't be getting the three months off. Let's put a figure on that. And and that was what she needed to to, to make it worth her while to walk away. And interestingly, when she put it to that company, they didn't even blink, which says to me that she was probably underpaid at her current job. Right. And so I think one of the great things that you can do is talk to people, men and women um, in your industry, in um, tangential industries, talk to recruiters about what is the benchmark for these roles? What could I be getting if I move to another company? Because if you've been at the one company for a long time, perhaps you don't even know how far or perhaps how above the the market rate that you're sitting. So that's one thing. The other thing that we always say is um, make sure that you go in with data, make sure that you track the achievements that you have done and how you measure that. And that's really where the pep talker app comes in. So essentially what it does is twice a week, it'll send you a prompt to be like, Hey, what's going on? What are you really proud of this week? And it allows you to enter via text or an image or whatever it is, the achievements that you've had and the things you're really proud of. And if you do that on a regular basis, not only will your mindset grow and will you feel more confident because of the nudge theory of psychology, but also at a performance review or a job interview, you have data points to draw on to say, yes, I can give you an example where I've handled a challenging situation like XYZ, where I managed to increase ROI by 22% and add 20 million to the bottom line or whatever it is, because you then have those data points. You're not kind of scrambling at the last minute to collate it all. So I think that being really clear on like what is the value that you add and how do you quantify that. And that can be challenging depending if you're not in a sales role, but there are ways that you can do that. Um, you know, you can contribute to culture, which also does add value albeit not in necessarily a revenue line way, but that is still really valuable to a company. So just being really clear on tracking all those successes that you have and how you can help companies grow even more.
1: Yeah, and I think it's ultimately negotiation 101. The person who wins the negotiation is the most prepared every single time mm. without fail. You don't have to be a good negotiator. Mm-hmm. Uh, you need to be the most prepared person. And if you can go in with comps and data and and show why this is the case, then you can prove your case. Uh, I think the other thing yeah. that's, that's interesting about this too is that to assume that your leadership is going to mentor you the way that you want to be mentored mm-hmm. is folly, right? Mm-hmm. Like they have a set of experiences that allow them to do to mentor in the way that they do that. But they only have individualized experiences from themselves, so you, you just don't have enough data points when you're mentored by only a few people. And if you come from a place where you have no mentors, when if your parents didn't have the same career that you had, if your friends, you know, didn't have the same career, if you're going into tech for the first time and nobody around you knows how to code, Mm. like it's just going to be too difficult to even find a mentor in the first place. And again, you won't, you just won't have the benchmarks to be able to do that. And I just, it's so exciting to hear about your platform because I think it's just so it's a human condition to be mentored by, you know, the tribal elders or Mm -hmm. whatever it is like, that's how, and stories are the way that we do that. So, Mm -hmm. no, it's just funny in a roundabout way, how, you know, the point of of journalism and telling stories and being able to pass information is, is still kind of what you're doing.
2: I do think that's really interesting because you wouldn't think that journalism would necessarily be applicable to a tech um, based company, but for sure, what I have found is that people relate to stories, right? And people want to share their stories and the pep talk app allows you to share your story of your career and the successes of that career. Because often we focus on the negatives. We focus on the deal. We didn't close the typo, you know, the mistake you made having a tough conversation. We focus on the negative things and some feedback we've had from users. There's one woman who works in theater and she said to us, she's like, you know, for me, the app is useful because it's helped me improve my mindset. My mindset has, has really shifted into a more positive mindset, which has allowed me to then think more clearly, I suppose, and think more abundantly, which has allowed her to do better at work and also negotiate better. I think the other thing that's important on negotiation is a lot of the times people hear the word negotiation and they freak out yeah, and they think conflict, they think argument, they think winners and losers. And what we really encourage people to think about is that negotiation really is a win-win, Yep. right? Like frankly, if a company needs to hire someone, they need to hire someone. And if you're really good, then they'd be lucky to have you. And I think it's also about reaching. You're the prize. It. Yeah, like there's there's a real, you know, people are so important in this economy. Of course, there's technology. Of course, jobs are being automated, but there's still a war out there for great talent. And if you're really great at your job, they would be lucky to have you. And so there is a, mi- a middle ground where, you want more money or maybe you don't want more money. Maybe you want flexible work. Maybe you want more 401k. Maybe you want, you know, two weeks extra annual leave. That's not going to cost them necessarily any money. So there's all sorts of other things that you can negotiate on as well, right? It's not just compensation in a monetary sense. I think it's also about broadening our mindset to think I want to work remotely one day a week. And that's actually going to change my quality of life because I won't have to commute for four hours. So that's an intangible thing for you. And it doesn't cost the company anything, but if that's going to make you a happier employee, then perhaps they're happy to grant that for you. So we just always like to think of it as meeting somewhere that both parties are happy. You don't want to screw one another over. It's about, I want to be really happy and well compensated. And the company wants to have someone who's going to work really hard for them in that role.
1: Where are we at on the gender pay gap and where are we going to be you know, over, say, the next 10 years?
2: Look, that's a great question. I mean, I hope that in 10 years you and I are having this conversation and I'm out of a job because we've fixed the problem. There's no more issues. Everyone's equal and the world's doing great things. The data essentially is saying that it's going to take more or less about 100 years. To close the pay gap at the rate that we're going right now. And so that's not ideal. Uh, And so what we're trying to do is really shift that at the grassroots level, because we know that a lot of women are amazing negotiators, right? And a lot of women do negotiate super well. And a lot of women have a lot of confidence and they don't need pep talker. And that's great. And that's fine. And so we're helping the women that maybe do need help and that maybe do doubt themselves and that do find that there's a lacking of confidence in certain situations that that's the the women that we're really trying to help. We want to upskill them to kind of have the confidence and then secondly, have the skills that they need to negotiate for themselves and to advocate for their worth. I mean, I hope that we can eradicate the pay gap sooner than the 100 year timeframe. Certainly there's a lot of issues that play into this. It's not just, this is not an issue that's women's fault. I think that's really important. Like this is an issue that is generational and that needs to be changed at a macro level from a government and policy level. Businesses need to step up and there's some great examples of companies um, across the world that are doing that, that are doing their part. So it's, it's going to take a variety of forces. It's not sadly going to happen overnight but i feel like there's definitely steps in the right direction and you know we're really positive about this we're really excited to see that this is a conversation coming into the um into the mainstream and i think that's a really really great thing
1: do employers set out with the intention to pay women less than men
2: i don't think so i don't think that employers are bad people uh you know i think what we're seeing in terms of the gender pay gap often one of the largest reasons for it is unconscious bias. And so I think a great example of that is we know that little girls are paid less allowance than little boys. And that's not because parents are bad humans. It's because of unconscious bias. So perhaps The little boy is helping dad chop wood in the backyard or mow the lawn. And perhaps the little girls are helping, you know, mom in the kitchen or doing ironing. These are stereotypes, of course. And so there's a perception that one of those set of tasks is tougher and harder than another set of tasks. And that's not necessarily true, but that's just the way that society has been for such a long time. And so, really, this is a generational shift in a lot of ways, and it's going to take generations to change because there are mindsets that we need to slowly, slowly change. Right. And so it comes back to unconscious bias. And I think the first step in any of that is to acknowledge that there is a problem. And that maybe even though you're an excellent human, you do a lot of great things, you have a lot of, you know, you believe in equality, perhaps even you, for whatever reason, have a bias that you're not even aware of. And, you know, I put myself in that, in that category as well. Right. Like I know as an Australian woman, in my mid thirties, there are biases that I carry that I'm probably not even aware of. And I, I try and I try and open my eyes to that. And I try and be really aware and conscious of that. But it's, it's something that I think you have to practice every day and you have to ask for feedback. You have to say to people like, as, and I had someone the other day who had to give me some feedback and say, I just think that that was a comment that was perhaps not ideal. And I was really grateful for that because if people don't call each other out, how are we ever going to change behavior? And so I think it's great that slowly corporate culture is getting to a point where people can say, listen, that actually was an appropriate behavior. It's not appropriate to rub the shoulders of a woman in your office unwarranted. Like that's not appropriate. That may or may not have happened to me earlier in my career, but you know, and of course things a lot, a lot worse than that happening and that are considered quite normal. And sometimes it's malicious. And I think sometimes it's because people don't realize that it's inappropriate. And certainly these days, it's absolutely considered inappropriate.
1: What is some of the feedback that you've got from Fortune 500 leaders uh, about this, both on the platform and and kind of like anecdotally in person?
2: It's very interesting. And we find that some companies are really excited to have these conversations. And most, I would put most of the companies that we work with in that in that bucket. Sometimes we will work with executives who have done things a certain way for a long time. They've treated people a certain way and that's the way they've always done it. Um, And so I think sometimes shifting that mindset can be challenging, but not impossible. And what we try and do when we're working with clients is really try and create that common ground. Because if you don't understand the impact that your behaviour is having on the other party, it's very hard to change that behaviour. And so I think that that's um, one of the most important things. But certainly like where we love working with some of our amazing clients, you know, like the JP Morgans of this world, um, like the Revlons who bring us in to run training programmes to empower their high potential female leaders, to help their staff overcome confidence issues and to help with negotiation. And, you know, negotiation is about so much more than just pay rises. Frankly, if your entire team is a great negotiator, you're going to get better sales outcomes. You're going to pay less for the costs that you have to run your office. And you're going to ask the question at every opportunity, is there a way we can do a deal here? And just asking that question, it's always surprising the results that you can get. There's um, one female founder who is a, is a wonderful woman. She runs a multi hundreds of millions of dollar company. Every time she goes shopping for clothes, she asks for a discount. I was like, what? She's like, oh, absolutely. She said um, she'll go into Zara, Topshop, wherever it is. And she'll say, do you have a discount? And inevitably the store person who's serving them will say, are you a teacher or a student or something like that? And she'll say, well, I could be. And even though she's not, she said, you know, nine times out of 10, she'll get a discount. Maybe it's 5%, maybe it's 10%. But, you know, if you don't ask, you don't get. And so um, I think that's really interesting just at that baseline level. And one of the exercises we often do with staff, um, with clients that we're working with, We say to our clients, we want you to leave this workshop and we want you to go into your grocery store and grab a piece of fruit, go up to the counter, uh, go to buy it and say, I just wanted to know, would it be possible to get a discount? And see what they say. And we want you to go to Saks or to Bloomingdale's or whatever it is and buy, you know, make up whatever you're going to buy and say, is it possible to get a discount on this piece of clothing or on this cleanser or this perfume? And the worst thing that can happen is that they say no. And you walk out of that store and you probably never see that person again. And what that does is it trains your brain that it's actually okay to ask because often, particularly as women, we've been socialized that you keep the peace and you don't rock the boat and you would never do that. But actually it's completely fine to ask the question and it's completely fine to the other person to say no. And you have to obviously be respectful of that in in the situations that I'm, that I'm referring to in the grocery store. But training yourself to ask at these small, seemingly insignificant occasions, what it does is it trains you and it teaches you that it is okay to ask. It is okay to ask the question. Sometimes you'll win, sometimes you won't necessarily, but it's okay to keep asking. Yeah.
1: I mean, I would add to that too, that one of the things that we talk about all the time mission is about creating value. It's like negotiation is about creating Mm -hmm. value. It's about uh, allowing, yeah. it, you know, it's not a fixed pie mindset. It's a growth mindset. Yes. And I think that that's one of the big things in, especially in the startup community, that's so awesome. And it's just something that people don't realize as employees. It's mm-hmm. like, you can just create value anywhere you want. Yep. I promise no startup CEO. Yeah. If you go figure out a way to make them more money, is going to turn no. it down. Yeah. yeah. And if you do figure out a way to make money yep. saying I should get 10% of this is a yep. great starting point to figure that out. And I, and I really think like you look at some of the early startup, uh, non-founders that helped build companies and like, they were just great value creators.
2: A hundred percent. And they, they didn't
1: come in and just like say, Hey, I want equity in this company. They came in, hit the ground running, like kicked ass and then created value. Yeah. And I think that it's the mindset of creating rather than taking that, allows negotiators to be great. It's about creativity. That's why it's create. Right. Um, And I just think that that's another thing that people, they, they want more things, they want outcomes, uh, but they don't know how to creatively get to those outcomes. And it, Takes someone to be able to like say, hey, did you like here's an example of how somebody did this? Yeah. Uh, and if you don't have those examples, it's it's just hard to think about.
2: Totally. And I think that's very true because often when you're going into a negotiation with a company, perhaps you're asking for more money. Perhaps there's actually no money there. Like that that is sometimes that's the reality, right? But I think the next step from that is to say, okay, I appreciate that. You can't give me any more compensation. I understand. If I increase revenue, Can we negotiate a deal where I get anywhere, I don't know, three to 15%, whatever it is, a sliding scale, you know, a commission of any new business that I bring in. Can we negotiate that I take off the first Monday of every month so that I can walk my child to school and catch up on, like, can we negotiate on other things so that you're actually going to create value either for the company or for yourself that maybe is not in necessarily monetary terms right now. And I think you as the individual have to be the one that comes to the table with those solutions because your boss obviously is super busy so you need to be the one thinking creatively and doing that mental gymnastics for them to make it easy for them to say yes
1: this has just been awesome uh, we're yeah. super excited to to follow along highly recommend everybody go check out uh and download download rate and review
2: for sure jump on the, the whole- pep talker app let me know what you think good bad or otherwise we're always interested in growing the product improving we're adding features as we speak right now my devs are hard at work bless them and yeah like also like jump on the conversation like we have an instagram account we have a twitter account at pep talker people can jump in let us know your thoughts what are your tips what's worked for you what hasn't worked for you because i think we can all learn from each other uh in the community for sure
1: awesome we'll link that stuff up in the show notes so everybody can just click right in
2: yeah thanks for hanging out no thank you so much for having me it's been fun
1: take care